a song lyric came to mind when I was preparing the message this week. It's a song written by um, Justin Bieber and Ed Sheeran. And here are the lines that came to mind. For all the times that you made me feel small, I fell in love, now I feel nothing at all. I never felt so low and I was vulnerable. Was I a fool to let you break down my walls? Whether it was a romantic relationship or not, has anyone ever made you feel small? Think about that. Has anyone ever made you feel small? It's not a good feeling, is it? It's not a good feeling. What are the songwriters talking about here when they say that, being made to feel small? They're talking about someone feeling insignificant in a relationship, right? Someone feeling insignificant. Someone being devalued. Then maybe condemned. Then maybe ignored by that other person. Being made to feel like you just don't matter. But this morning, I believe that God's word, that God, through his word, wants to redeem this idea. At the very least, he wants to redeem the language used there. This morning, in light of Job chapter 40, the first five verses, verses 1 through 5, I'd like to persuade you that being made to feel small is one of the best things that can ever happen to you. Being made to feel small is one of the best things that can ever happen to you. But this only works when God is the one who makes you feel that way. God alone. So let's unpack this idea by looking together at Job chapter 40. As you may remember from your reading, going through the reading plan in Job or from the previous message last week, Job is a book about suffering. You probably already knew that. Job is a book about suffering, specifically about the suffering of a righteous man, a man who served God faithfully. So why was Job suffering? Well, most of this book, most of this book contains a conversation between Job and his three and three of his friends who have come to minister to him. It's a conversation in which these friends are trying to convince Job that his unthinkably immense and painful suffering must be the result of divine judgment against his unconfessed sin against his stubborn heart. Right? You just hear about what happens to this guy and you think, whoa, I don't believe in the Greek gods like Zeus throwing down lightning bolts, but this seems kind of analogous, doesn't it? This guy's getting pummeled and pummeled in a way that's clearly something is going on here bigger than just happenstance. So the friends are trying to convince Job that his suffering is the result of divine judgment. God is reacting to Job's unconfessed sin, some unconfessed sin, his stubborn heart, uh, not wanting to confess that sin, not wanting to turn from his ways. Despite Job's repeated affirmations that he has a clear conscience before God, these men want their friend to get right with God. 
they genuinely care for him, don't they? They want him to do the spiritual business that he needs to do to be right with, get right with God. So finally, after about 35 chapters of this, back and forth, right, this conversation, God shows up. God shows up. And after two chapters of questioning Job, this is what we read in chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. And Yahweh said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. That is, let him answer the question, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Right? Where's your answer? Then Job answered Yahweh and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. That's the 35 chapters before, right? (laughs) I've spoken once. I will not answer. Twice. This is him talking right now. Twice. But I will proceed no further. He's done. Zip it, baby, right? He's done. Now notice how Job replies in verse 4. I am of what? Small account. I am of small account. Let's make sense of this conclusion that Job's arrived at by breaking down the short passage that we have here and really tying it into the context of this these closing chapters of the book of Job. First, think with me about this passage and its place in the context here. Think about what it tells us about Take a look on the screen here. Number one, Job's fault. Job's fault. Do you remember how God described Job in the opening chapter of the book? Do you remember that? It's verse 8 of chapter 1. We'll switch it over and you'll see that verse here. This is what verse one, uh, chapter 1 verse 8 says. And Yahweh said to Satan, in Hebrew, the adversary, Yahweh said to the adversary, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Do you desire that God would talk about you that way? That should be our heart, shouldn't it? But, But wow, what a wonderful declaration about Job, his servant Job. But notice what happens here in chapter 40, verse 1. Fast forward from chapter 1 up to chapter 40. God labels Job in a different way, doesn't he? He labels him as a fault finder, contending with the Almighty. Now Job is a fault finder who's contending with the Almighty. He's someone who argues with God. Do you see that in the text? He argues with God. When God first appears on the scene here in chapter 38, he uses this language to describe Job. You can look back there if you'd like to. He says this, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is he talking about? He's talking about Job. That's who he's speaking to here. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? God will continue in chapter 40. Just drop down to verse 8. Will you, Job, even put me in the wrong? Ask God. Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Now, what exactly is going on here? Job was a rock star in chapter 1, right? 
amazing the way he was spoken about by God. What has happened here that we come to these verses here at the end of the book? Well, in the conversation that dominates most of this book that I mentioned earlier, Job and his three friends, the careful reader discovers that even though Job did nothing wrong to bring about or deserve the suffering he endured, while the book unfolds, he is sinking into a wrong attitude as he processes his sufferings. That's what's happening. Or to put it another way, Job didn't suffer as a result of his wrongs, but he was in the wrong as a result of his sufferings. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. Job didn't suffer as a result of his wrongs, but he was in the wrong as a result of his sufferings. Here are some examples of that attitude. We'll put these verses up on the screen for you. A couple slides here. Job chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. I will say to God, when God shows up, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me, right? Let me know why, God. Does it seem good to you, God, to oppress? Does it seem good to you to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Ooh. But I would speak to the Almighty. This is chapter 13, verse 3. I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. 23, 3 and 4. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, talking about God, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and I would fill my mouth with arguments. Job 30, verse 21. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Chapter 31, verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear, someone to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. You see, somehow in trying to make sense of what happened to him, Job has come to believe that God got it wrong. And thus he now owes Job an explanation. Or at the very least, God owes Job a hearing where Job can argue his case. But God doesn't get it wrong, does he? God doesn't get it wrong. So in our main text, we are reading here about how by God's grace, Job's fault leads to, number two, Job's humbling. Job's humbling. Moving down through these verses, our main verses in chapter 40. As I emphasized earlier, when God checks Job, when God calls Job out about his attitude, Job is clearly humbled as we saw in our main text. We see that in verses 3 and 4. Then Job answered Yahweh and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? How do we explain this turnaround with Job? Why the sudden difference between the things that we were seeing earlier in terms of Job, right, contending against God. God, come and tell me what's going on. Let me give you, I'm going to argue with you about what's happening here. This is not right. Notice how God identifies himself here, trying to answer why the turnaround. How does, how does he 
And how does he identify himself in the context? God says, will you contend with El Shaddai? Will you contend with the Almighty? Hebrew, El Shaddai. A title used of God almost 50 times in the Old Testament. Right? Will you contend with the Almighty? But it's not simply how God has identified himself there in chapter 40. Chapter 38, verse 1, revealed that Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind. Whoa, that must have been humbling by itself, right? God shows up on the scene. God is answering Job out of a whirlwind, whatever exactly that means. I'm thinking of like Mount Sinai maybe and some... That was a lot of thunder and lightning and shaking and you know, uh, darkness, descending clouds. This is the whirlwind. So who knows? That's humbling by itself. But there's more than that. Throughout the previous two chapters, as many of you read last week, right, in our, in our reading plan, God here turns the tables on question, questioning Job, question-filled Job. And he says in 38 verse 3, I will question you and you make known to me. Right? You want to, you want me to come and you want to question me? You want to interrogate me? You want to make your case before me? You're going to answer some questions first. What exactly is God asking Job here? Well, in chapters 38 and 39, our two chapters leading up to this main text, he's asking him a number of questions. He's rhetorically asking him if he knows if Job knows, if Job is familiar with, if he has experience, if he can do what only God can do. Chapter 38, verse 4. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Chapter 38, verse 12. Have you commanded the morning? Chapter 38, verse 18. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Chapter 38, 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Constellations in the night sky. 38, 35, can you send forth lightnings, Job? 39, 1, do you know when the mountain goats give birth high up and deep in the inaccessible mountains of very extreme places on this earth? God knows and sees and is glorified in that dark cave when that mountain birth mother gives birth to her calves. Do we know? No. We have no knowledge whatsoever. 39.19 Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? 39.26 and 27 Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up? And God will go on in the remainder of chapter 40 and into chapter 41. He will go on pointing Job back to creation. He will go on to direct Job to these large and intimidating, sometimes deadly animals. He's reminding them him here of these large, intimidating and sometimes sometimes deadly animals. Animals in this world that most sane people would never imagine that they could engage with or contend with in the same way Job has been contending with the very God who made those creatures. 
Job, you wouldn't walk up to a 22-foot crocodile and think that you could put him on a leash and take him home. You know that. Why are you messing with me then? Why are you coming against me with a rope as if you could tame me? God says to him. So the powerful presence of God, the overwhelming reality of who God is, has wonderfully made Job feel very, very small. We see that, this humbling in his response in chapter 40, verses 3 and 4. Think about this. In the same spirit in which God confronted the ancient reader, if Job were to take place today, maybe God would come and he would bring, he would bring him these kinds of questions. Think about this. The earth is the fifth largest planet in our solar system. Its circumference is almost 25,000 miles around. But if we measure that in light years, a way to measure very large stretches of space, light years, we know that light can travel around the earth seven and a half times in one second. Now, compare that with the 1.3 seconds it takes for light to travel from the earth to the moon, a distance of 239,000 miles. Seven and a half times around the earth in one second, 1.3 Seconds from the earth to the moon in terms of a measurement of light traveling. But when the earth is compared to our solar system, let's take it out to our solar system, we learn that it takes light about eight minutes to travel from the sun to the earth. So that means that if the sun vanished right now, it would be eight minutes until we realized it was gone. Eight minutes to travel from the sun to the earth. But if we took that measurement out to Pluto, which is 3.7 billion miles from the sun, it takes five and a half hours for the sun's light to travel out to that planetoid, is what it's called today, right? A planetoid, a dwarf planet. Five and a half hours for sun to get out to Pluto, the edge of our solar system. Now, why don't we bump the scale up to our entire Milky Way galaxy? Not just our our solar system, but our Milky Way galaxy. For light to travel across its width would take not hours, but would take 100,000 years. That's 588 quadrillion miles across or 588 followed by 15 zeros. But remember, our galaxy, the Milky Way, is just one of many galaxies in the universe. How many galaxies are there in the universe? Recent estimates put the number at hundreds of billions of galaxies. That's in the observable universe. Thus, if the light that takes 100,000 years to travel across our galaxy were making its trip across the whole, the entire observable universe, it would take over 13. 
13 billion years. Brothers and sisters, that should make you feel very, very small. But here's the problem. That should make you feel small in a physical material sense, right? Just a tiny little tiny whatever in this grand scheme of things. Tiny, humbled in that way. And that's good, but that's not what we need. Here's what we need to know. Here's the bigger point. Every square inch of our unfathomably massive universe rests securely in the all-powerful hand of Job's God. All of it is right there. Not one quark, not one quasar does anything outside of His will, outside of His knowledge, outside of His purposes. It's all in His hand, all under His control. Job's God, our God, as I said earlier, being made to feel small is one of the best things that can ever happen to you. But it only works when God is the one who does that. Why is that the case? Take a look here. Because the bigness of God, why is that the case? Because the bigness of God, number one, puts us in our proper place before God. It is good to be in your proper place before God, isn't it? There's a deep principle at work that makes us hate that proper place. And for most of us, for many, many years, we lived outside of that proper place, at least in denial of our proper place. (laughs) The reality hadn't shifted, but we lived in delusion and denial of our proper place before God. But being in our proper place is so incredibly important. It is good. It is right. It is safe to be there. So it puts us in our proper place before God. And number two, it gives us the right perspective on reality. You want a right perspective on reality. You want to know what's up and what's down. God does that through His Word. He reveals these things to us and He reveals how big He is. Isn't this what happened to Job in chapters 38 and 39? God reveals Himself as the Almighty. He speaks out of a whirlwind and then He just launches these questions at Job to say, Who do you think you are? What do you think that you're doing? Don't you know who I am? He reminds Job powerfully of who he is. Now, speaking of Job, think with me about what this passage tells us about number three. I see this is the third in our our breakdown. Job's response. We saw Job's fault. We understood how we arrived at that the fault finder, the one who argues with God, contentious against God. We talked about Job's humbleness. God reveals himself to Job as the Almighty, the Creator, the the powerful Creator. And now this is Job's response to God's revelation when little Job is put in his proper place before this big, big God and he comes back to a right perspective on reality. What are we told about his response? What does he do next? Look again at the end of verse 4. Job declares, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Verse 5, I have spoken once, I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful response. Little Job's response 
to this big, big God is silence. Silence. Something we are desperately lacking in our day and age. Silence. Some people hate silence, don't they? Always have to have something on, a radio, a TV, something has to be on. Silence drives them nuts. They want to be somewhere where people are talking, maybe in a public place. But this silence, their mouth closed, even if there's not silence around you, this mouth shut, the same kind of uh, economy of words, the restraint on our tongues that the book of Proverbs recommends to us is the result of encountering this great God. His heart is teaching his tongue humility, right? His tongue is teaching his, his tongue, his heart is teaching his tongue humility. For this humility is showing him the proper boundaries between the creature and his creator. And even though suffering, what this book is about, can distort our vision, Job teaches us it is crucial that we, by God's grace, hold fast to our proper place and a right perspective on reality. Suffering can jar us from that, can't it? We can lose sight. Things can get out of proportions when we are buffeted by the waves of suffering. Now, in Job's final words, chapter 42, I'll put those on the screen here. Screen here. You can look, if you'd like to, at that chapter. I'll, I'll drop a few uh, quotations. There's a few things that jo- God has said that I'm going to drop out of here. They're just repeated from God's questions to Job. Uh, this, These verses... In these verses, we learn more about Job's newly humbled heart. This is what Job declares. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. These, again, are the final words of Job. So if you want to figure out what Job has has learned through this, everything that he's gone through, this is it. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's sovereign. God is sovereign. Therefore, I have uttered, I have spoken what I did not understand. I have uttered things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Despise myself. What does he mean by that? He means he despises the way that he's been acting, what he's been doing, who he's been before God, standing here demanding that God come and give him an explanation, that God sort it all out for him, argue his case against God. He despises that. He repents in dust and ashes. Now remember how Job went astray. In trying to make sense of what happened to him, he came to believe that somehow God got it wrong and thus God now owed Job some kind of an explanation or at the very least, a hearing, a divine hearing, a heavenly hearing where Job could argue his case. But as we see in chapters 40 and 42, 42, Job is different. Job now recognizes the utter foolishness of his thinking and behavior. You see, 
being made to feel small was exactly what Job needed as he struggled with thinking too highly of himself. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Thinking too highly of himself, this dude was brought low. But even in the midst of our suffering, when we feel like everything is collapsing around us, it is easy to default to our me-centeredness, isn't it? It is easy to shift back to that, I can fix this. I can figure this out. I'm going to get this done. Whether it's suffering or whether it's success that distorts our vision, brothers and sisters, we need to cling to our smallness. It's good to be small. It's good to be small. But we can only do that. The right kind of smallness. We can only cling to that smallness when we practice the presence of a big, big God. Amen? Every day, we need to practice the presence of a big, big God. Of course, from one perspective, and for many people, a big, big God is a distant God, is a disinterested God, a God before whom we are insignificant. God is so big. You just described, Pastor, how big the universe is. It's all in the hand of Almighty God. Then who am I? What do I matter? But please remember how the book of Job ends. Not only does God come to confront Job, but he also comes to restore Job. His appearance here is an act of grace. To speak truth in love to Job. To confront and comfort Job. His servant Job. Chapter 1 verse 8. Chapter 42 verse 7. God calls him the same thing. Beginning and end. His servant Job. My servant Job. He says that to the three friends. You have not spoken what is right of me. He tells the three friends. You have not spoken what is right of me or my servant Job. Don't you love that? Job remains his servant beginning to end. God has come and we read in the end here that God doubles, right? He literally doubles Job's material blessings, no longer 11,000 livestock. Now we have a total of 22,000 livestock. He's restored with children, right? He's blessed in this material relational way. But even better than that, we know that Job is a spiritually changed man after what he endured, that adversity that he endured. Job, a blameless and upright man, a man who feared God and turned away from evil. That's how we met him at the beginning of the book. That man now knows God in a way he had not before. And there is nothing more valuable than that. You see, just the material blessings are just icing on the cake. They're just signposts to the spiritual glorious reality that Job knows God better than he did. He knows himself better. Did Job suffer because of certain sins? No. Did Job suffer because he was a sinner? Yes. Huh? What? What do you mean by that, Pastor Bryce? 
Did he suffer because of certain sins? No, God was not paying him back based on certain sins that he had committed. But he did suffer because God knew that the ugliness that this adversity brought out of Job, God knew that it was not only in Job, but that it needed to be dealt with. Right? So when Job argued and found fault with God, when Job contended with God, God knew that was in his heart. God knew those tendencies were in there. God understood that. And he brought Job through that trial that those things might be exposed, that he might confront Job in his grace and that Job might be a different man walking out of his adversity. Through Job's suffering, God was refining a sinner whom he loved. Is that your story as well? Through your suffering, God is refining a sinner whom he loves. Could Job fully understand this? No. Can we fully understand how God works in this way in our own lives? No. But we can trust that God is a big big God and that means his love is equally immense big big love big big grace the gospel shouts that truth louder than anything else in scripture amen the gospel shouts the big big love of God in a way unlike anything else in Scripture. Remember who we are. As those opening song lyrics remind us, we are the kind of people who often make others feel small in order to make ourselves feel quote-unquote big. That's who we are. (laughs) Worse than that, we are the kind of people who end up making God quote-unquote small in order to make ourselves feel quote-unquote big. Come here, God. Let me... Right? Yeah, all right. I'm living my life. I'm doing my thing. God exists for me. I don't exist for God. God exists for me. How can God help my plans? How can God help my agenda? Making God small. Can we actually make him small? No. But in terms of our perceptions, these, this is the kind of people that we are. This is what we do. But the good news about Jesus is that this big, big God of Job became small for us in Jesus without losing any of his bigness. What does that mean? It means that the hands that fashioned and the hands that always uphold our 94 billion light year wide universe are the same hands that once touched blind eyes. That, that once blessed precious children that healed the leper, the same hands that broke bread in the upper room and that took 
the nails at Golgotha for you. A big, big God became small in Jesus for us without losing any of His bigness. We can't even wrap our minds around that, can we? The big love of God, the big love of a big God showed up in a big way in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what our good news is. The question is, do you believe that? When are you tempted to question God is maybe the question the Holy Spirit is driving to your heart this morning. When are you question, when are you tempted to question God? What kinds of circumstances? Maybe that's happening right now. When are you tempted to believe that He's getting it wrong in your life, getting it wrong in the world, even if you, unlike Job, don't say so out loud? How are you tempted in those ways? And, and in what ways do you attempt to make yourself bigger than you actually are? What's driving that? And who suffers when you do that? Brothers and sisters, friends, will you allow God to make you feel small this morning? Will you open yourself up to these truths and let Him make you feel small, small before a big God? Ultimately, of course, this isn't about our feelings. We are small before a big God. Whether we feel that way or not, we are small. Can we accept that reality? Can we embrace that reality? Remember this, in God's eyes, small is not insignificant. Let the Word of God reveal this big God to you each day and His big love to you through Jesus Christ. Open, expand. It is safer, I know, for many of us. It is safer to keep God limited. It serves our agendas to keep God constrained, to not see Him in this big, big way and really embrace our smallness before Him. But... There is grace in our proper place, isn't there? There is goodness when you align your perspective with reality. As it does this, the Word of God does this, let that revelation humble you, let it refine you, and pray in this spirit. Think about this. God showed up in Job's life and spoke to him through the whirlwind. God showed up for you and spoke to you through His Son, Jesus. That's how God made His appearance to impact our lives. He came and walked among us. And He came through His Holy Spirit to touch your life. Let's pray in this spirit. We'll take a a minute here at the end. But pray in this spirit in just a moment, quietly, in light of something like this. Almighty God, like Job, Confront us in our delusions of bigness with the reality of your bigness. Make us feel small that we, through Christ, might know your comfort as well. The comfort of creatures depending on and receiving our Creator's grace. Again, let's pray in that same spirit. Take a moment here and talk with God about what you've heard from His Word.